thank all of you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, this is our second read-through, and we're heading into 3.5, the territorial representation. Uh, I will stream the book here shortly. Uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, feel free to jump onto uh, Twitter, give us a follow. Uh, we don't do much there because social media is a bastion of hopelessness and sadness. Uh, but we are also on Patreon and SoundCloud, BGQC on both. Uh, with that, um, I'll just kick this off because I kind of want to get into it. So, uh, Well, representation is always a social and psychic repression of desiring production. It should be borne in mind that this repression is exercised in very diverse ways, according to the social formation considered. The system of representation comprises three elements that vary in depth the repressed representative, the repressing representation, and the displaced represented. But the agents that come to carry them into effect are themselves variable. There are migrations in the system. We see no reason for believing in the universality of one and the same apparatus of socio-cultural repression. One can speak instead of a coefficient of affinity that varies in degree between social machines and desiring machines, according to whether their respective regimes are more or less similar, according to whether the desiring machines have a greater or lesser chance of causing their connections and interactions to pass into the regime of the social machines, according to whether the social machines execute more or less of a movement of detachment in relation to the desiring machines, and whether the death-carrying elements remain caught in the machinery of desire and cast it in the social machine, or, on the contrary, joined together to form a death instinct that extends throughout the social machine, crushing desire. It's a very simple opening paragraph going back through the repressing representative uh, that they've described in Oedipus. Uh, again, one of the things that they often do throughout this, it's their use of schizo, for example, is uh, breaking down the process of creation of a single element. Let's talk through Oedipus, for example. Um, they discuss how Oedipus forms, how Oedipus works, how Oedipus creates a desire or traps it is a better phrasing for it, um, and how it operates. But they're not saying that Oedipus is the only one that does that. They're saying this is a process that representation uses to trap desire. And if we're able to understand how it works with Oedipus, we can step back a little bit and say, well, what about these other bits of representation? And the answer is all of them, I think is how I would phrase that, is that a pretty decent way to put it, Jack? Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on. That's, they're starting to explain a little bit more clearly how the syntheses are used in the representation because um, and I, I went back to our last discussion. I posted some of the stuff we talked about um, that I'll read momentarily. But I, I, I felt that they were really more into like the fourth and fifth paralogisms um, more deeply than the other three. And here they're going into distribution and detachment, right? So we're talking about uh, how polyvocality is, is lost when S1 is created, right, a, a transcendental signifier, and how that affects distribution of libidinal energy um, as Newman. Uh, any questions on this opening bit? Because it's, a, it's an early volley as we start, we're about to sort of break down a great deal of this representation and how it functions, so. It's important as we go through, if anyone has a question, that includes uh, those of you who are uh, sitting on YouTube. Um, I'm watching the chat there. We're open to questions. 
anyone has any right now because it's this is not an easy thing uh, to say again. Anyone who says, oh, Deleuze and Guattari just mean that the repression creates desire. No, no, that's not what they mean at all. So it's uh, we want to make sure we get through this. Um, maybe I, this is because I, I miss some of the other ones, but what what um, what's the social machine again? Uh, the social machine. I'm not sure. I would say uh, the oh, social socialist... social machines as opposed to desiring machines. Yeah, desiring machines. Um, think about it almost as meta levels of complexity. So a social machine is uh, the second regime, and they talk about this in the previous um, uh, section. Uh, desiring machines are the things that basically form and produce the subject, and they produce and they are desire. Uh, if you think about it as a giant assembly line, um, desire and desiring machines produce desire, create desire, move it along, keep pushing it forward and create the subject, you um, and all of us and a whole bunch of different things. On the other side of things, uh, at the, the molar regime, uh, desiring machines are not the thing that is the base level. Instead, it's the social machines, which is the the complex interpersonal play between people and inside of social constructs. Um, and, and that is post-subject. It is, it is post-subject, yes. Uh, sim simultaneous, because it's the molar and molecular. So yeah, simultaneous. Hand, this is fair. This is fair. It's a yeah. different regime of the same elements. Yeah, that, that's right. it. It's two simultaneous regimes. That makes total sense. Um, to me, um, I just have a question, but maybe that's actually something that we'll get to. And that is, uh, is this related to, because they hint to it a little bit with detachment and stuff like that, to affect? Uh, or how that works? Because that's oh. also sort of a, maybe a detachment in some way from desire to... So you're going to go to, that's a whole, uh, it's not a thing they're going to get into here. But I will, okay. after this, recommend a handful of books that totally get into that. Because okay. um, I my answer would be yes, is we are talking about affect. That's not a thing that we're going to actually discuss, and I'm not going to... It would be like super going down a weird rabbit hole to start discussing that. All right. But uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, Rimka asks uh, the death instinct and the death... Uh, the, the death carrying elements uh, and the death instinct is... Uh, push towards entropy, essentially, the, the elimination of oneself. There's a lot of different ways to sort of interpret all of the different setups. Uh, Ken, do you want to take a crack at it? I just saw that you're in here. Yeah, sure. Uh, the So instinct is, um, is a mistranslation. Uh, it was death drive, free, instead of instinct with a K. So that's the first thing. Um, Second thing is is that the death drive is the internal disruption of the pleasure principle. And it's whatever pushes the pleasure principle beyond pleasure into pain. So the pleasure principle aims to reduce excitation. So you eat, you feel satiated, um, you have sex, you have an orgasm, so on and so forth. The death drive pushes this beyond this principle uh, to reduce excitation, um, and its faculties are repetition, compulsive repetition, 
and uh, sort of like a forced enjoyment. Um, and I think, uh, I think an easy example is like, uh, like uh, hard opioid abuse. I think is an easy example here. But yeah, that's the death drive. Um, in 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 so far as we're talking about it now, Freud at the end of Beyond the Pleasure Principle started to go in this direction, but he still was unsure whether there was a distinction, whether there was a duality of the drives, a life drive and death drive, or if it's one thing with an internal disruption. And that's where Lacan goes to, and then Deleuze takes up the mantle and I guess changes it a little. But Lacan ends up saying all drives are virtually death drives and that they repeat and um, and uh, push to their extreme, they ultimately aim at destruction. I hope and that's helpful. Yeah, it's, it's uh, to, to say with Lacan, because I think generally speaking, a lot of their reference, because it's gonna be from Guattari, is gonna be a Lacanian sort of tradition. Um, uh, your description is great. Uh, the, the, the subject in repetition, the push towards almost nostalgia and uh, the repetition of the thing I've enjoyed, uh, that drive, I think, is what they tend to refer to directly, like more or less. Is that fair, Ken? Yeah, nostalgia is a good point. So they talk about germinal flows here somewhere, and I don't quite know what they mean by that, but that's reminds me of the kind of nostalgia that they're talking about, this primary narcissism, going back to the state of undivided wholeness or whatever, but Lacan does the whole thing that that never existed in the first place. But yeah, so, nostalgia. Yeah, I want to clarify, you're saying that the Lacan uh, display, um, um, replaces the, the pleasure principle with the death drive, with the, with the idea of what the yeah, he suggested the death drive, Thanatos, is the internal disruption of the pleasure principle. So the pleasure principle has its own failing mechanism inside of it. And so the death drive is the internal disruption of the failure to be fully or finally satiated. Okay, yeah. Okay. And also, when uh, these representations, are they representations of also of the Oedipal um, complex? Representations in general. It's not just of Oedipus alone. Uh, the Oedipus is the example of representation they've used, but like I, again, and uh, like I can, I'm gonna, uh, I hope I'm getting things right, because it's a thing that in line with this talks is about when Lacan starts talking about the death drive. Um, he, one of the things he gets at that I think Watery really ran with, and I really appreciate, I've always liked from Lacan, is that. To him, the fundamental nature of the symbolic order is repetition and is the death drive, that it's not necessarily bounded up in us biologically, which is what Freud, uh, or people say Freud uh, was trying to get at. But for Lacan, it's the nature of representation in the symbolic order that produces the repetition that almost causes the death drive or innately sort of has it as a process that's, that's within it. Um, it's a really interesting way of thinking through the whole thing. I think I've always loved that too. Right. So that's the idea of the lack, right? The uh, the petite uh, uh, small a. Oh, we're not there yet. No. Uh, okay. 
Yeah, but when you yet. talk about the death drive, it makes, it makes me think of that idea of the, of the lack. Uh, just, uh, just quickly, uh, object A is not necessarily the lack. Uh, object A stands in place for the lacking thing with a capital T. But yeah, I, I think this is a, a hole that we would go down to have to describe that. Actually, it fits in nicely because it, so if you're looking with the displacement in that, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, the detachment and the distribution, that's where lack is sort of created, right? Because we're talking about how something in the uh, the assemblage, particularly the signifying chain, gets detached, right, and comes to represent desire. So to your point, it's not the, it's not so much the object A, but it's what's going to affect the object A in its production. So you do still kind of have that, but it's it's actually qualified and it's not as central. But I, I want to make one more point too, because Brooks, you're spot on when you say it's not exactly Oedipus, right? Because at this point, Oedipus is in a different construction. So I just wanted to bring up these three terms from our last uh, discussions, Deleuze and Guadagno opening up with them. You've got the repressing representation, which is what performs the repression, which in this in this socius is going to be incest. You've got the repressed representative, that which the repression comes to bear upon actually, which is going to be your germinal influx, which is page 184 actually where I'm grabbing that. And then you've got the displaced representative, excuse me, the displaced represented, which gives a falsified image meant to trap desire, which I believe they're qualifying as, uh, I believe that's Oedipus in this one. Very much. So, it's, it's, it's them saying, um, and as they talk through it, Oedipus is produced. And that's been their argument for some time now, is that Oedipus is produced, that we need to understand how Oedipus is made. But it's not that Oedipus is like a thing or a unique thing. Uh, Oedipus is one of the ways that uh, representation rears its head, but here is how it's produced, and that's kind of this territorial representation is us getting into that and having that larger discussion. Um, I, I do want to move, unless Jack, you've got a final thing, I do want to move to the next uh, last bit here. And then yeah, just to draw a conclusion off that. So what that means then is Oedipus here, like you're saying, is constructed, and it's constructed as the, the displaced representative. Whereas as we go through the associi, Oedipus will actually change gears and work as the repressed representative and later the re repressing representation. So uh, Oedipus is not, it, it's, it's, it, uh, it does different things in its relationship with repression for the associi. And that's all I've got. And, and do be ready. I'm already ready that this is not going to be a one reading chapter. This was four readings for us to get through last time. I expect us to get through it faster this time, but please ask questions as we go, because this is where a lot of the shit we've been reading for the last 3.4 sections. Uh, this is the culmination of a lot of this. So please ask questions, don't hesitate. But I am gonna to move to the next paragraph. The principal factor in each of these respects is the type or genus of social inscription, its alphabet, its characteristics. The inscription on the socius is in fact the agent of a secondary psychic repression, or repression 
in the proper sense of the term that is necessarily situated in relation to the desiring inscription of the body without organs. And in relation to the primary repression, the latter already performs in the domain of desire, a relation that is essentially variable. There is always social repression, but the apparatus of repression varies, depending in particular on what plays the role of the representative on which the repression is brought to bear. In this sense, it is possible that the primitive codes, at the moment they are acting on the flows of desire with a maximum of vigilance and extension, binding them in a system of cruelty, maintain an infinitely greater affinity with desiring machines than does the capitalist axiomatic, which nonetheless liberates the discoded flows. This is because, in the primitive socius, desire is not yet trapped, not yet introduced into a set of impasses. The flows have lost none of their polyvocity, and the simple represented in representation has not yet taken the place of the representative. In order to evaluate in every instance the nature of the apparatus and its effects on desiring production, it is therefore necessary to take into account not only the elements of representation as they are organized in depth, but the manner in which representation itself is organized at the surface, on the inscription surface of the socius. We will get to system of cruelty, so don't worry about asking about that. That's for sure coming up. Um, I'll say because no one else wants to. Harvester uh, of sorrow. I have a terminological question. <clears throat> mm. Sorry, today my voice is pretty bad. Um, they use here in the translation the the <clears throat> French uh, refoulement. Uh, does someone here know how to translate this uh, or why this is used for repression? Because uh, at least for me now in, in the first association, <clears throat> it reads like something, not only like a repression uh, in a hierarchical sense, but like fooling someone into something like uh, thinking in a specific hierarchy. I don't know French and I won't pretend to. And I'm not even sure necessarily it carries over cleanly, because I think we had this discussion last time, I remember, generally. Uh, but I'll wait and see if anyone else, because I know we have uh, one or two uh, French speakers here. Maybe they have something different to say. So there is a comparison between the... Uh, I'm not uh, sure, sorry. I'm not sure I understand exactly what you mean, um, uh, because, um, well, uh, just that in refoulement, I'm pretty sure there's no... Um, roots in Fu, um, which is um, uh, fooling. I don't think there's an idea of fooling in refoulement, so may, uh, just maybe, could you be more explicit of, uh, of what you mean? Well, my, my question was just if there is maybe more of a meaning to it than just repression, because it is pointed out here in this manner, like uh, when they talk about regimes, uh, it is not translated as well. Uh, but the uh, French word is also printed because uh, the term regime in, in French has uh, a way bigger history and, and uh, spectrum of connotations than, uh, um, well, for example, in English and in German. So I can say from the last time we went through this, um, and please, Michael, uh, I would love if you correct anything I'm about to say because we had a long discussion about their use of a fulmon. Um the way we need to be thinking about, in general, desire is flows. That's how they're talking about it over and over and over, flows of desire as things. Uh, Ruffelmont um, 
uh, I don't I don't have a better way of describing it um, is a term for example I would use if my uh, toilet backed up and the flows of my toilet are going out of it not into it uh, that would be a, a sewer refoulement for example or uh, I think the term is a uh, refoulement de go yeah, this double meaning would work. Um, it, it also has um, kind of idea of smell at the same way, in the same manner. Yeah, so when, when we talk about uh, refoulement here, it's thinking about the flows of desire and as they're moving, and that uh, if we think about them as moving out from the desiring machine, the refoulement is social repression pushing them back in. And that's the, the phrasing they use a great deal with repression here and the terminology and the allegories are a lot about the backup of it or the trapping or the holding back or the shoving it back in or the blocking. Um, and so refoulement, repression in English is, a, is probably a decent word to use for a translation for that because they're speaking a lot more poetically. Yeah. It's just the, just the actual translation of uh, refoulement, like I was checking, and the only translation there is for refoulement is repression. So I think there's that, there's that double meaning that they're probably using there because they, I mean, Deleuze loves that kind of shit. Um, but I think just in general, it, it just means repression for the most part, but there's like another edge to it. But uh, yeah, that would be the, the, the best way to use if you mean, um, repression so that's the word they would have used anyway i think um i'm not sure um yeah it's really difficult to to know if a double meaning was intended or not but um that's an interesting um way of seeing it and anyway um as some say um the author the authors are not the ones who have the last word on that <laughs> I like your point about circulation, both of you, because as we saw with their, their use of um, something of a universal language, right, the Leibnizian thing, the zero, or the, uh, the negatives and the pluses, that, that's really it, right, is they're talking about how flows are opened up uh, and restricted in their passages, right, or in the connections that are possible, um, which is, the German, is related to the germinal influx, right, which repression comes to bear upon because um, not only have we seen that this isn't the nuclear family as we're used to it because we've got an open system rather than a closed system and we've got the mother, uncle, aunt, sister, brother and we've got a whole different family construct going on there but we're seeing how here you've also got the point that they're as they're they're arguing here right this system and its engagement with repression is different than ours, and one of the main differences is going to be the relationship of coding versus decoding, where uh, with the capital socius, you're dealing with decoded flows and repression functions altogether differently, whereas here, it's actually still got a polyvocal nature, so it's it's not the same problem as we, uh, we find later on. Well, he goes on. The, the second half of this paragraph dives into um, the way that they're talking about how this repression sort of operates uh, differently. Uh, and a lot of it is going to be based on the socius and the way that the representation works. Um, the line they draw here, and as we were discussing in the primitive socius, uh, uh, 
in the earlier parts of this chapter. Uh, the way that desiring machines and production of desire is organized is very, very uh, close to the desiring machines. There isn't a disconnection deeply between that which I desire and that which I must seek. I'm, uh, I don't have the great deal of representations or this hyper abstract world that I live in. I need food. I need sex. I need family to, you know, grow. I need these things. They're, they're kind of direct. My jobs to get them and the demands uh, I've got them, uh, the demands upon me are very much there. And desire, as they say here, uh, desire doesn't get trapped. It doesn't work in the same methods uh, because des desire doesn't have yet the impasses. Uh, they haven't, the desires themselves sort of still continue to be what they are. Uh, things haven't been displaced. And the argument they're making here, and they will continue to be, is uh, that as we move through these different societies, the way that repression comes to bear is very much determined by the socius, by how representation works inside of each of the soci, um, and how that changes over time until we get to capital, which is an exceedingly complex version of that. It's also interesting <clears throat> to point out that they explicitly say here that um, there's always social repression. So um, every aspect of the social is connected to this uh, repressing form of the represent uh, of the representation. Yeah, and to Bert's point, right? That's at least here. That's on the socius. So that's that's particularly interesting because representation here. It's not like it's it's not like it's floating around or anything. It's actually on the surface of inscription. Um, that is the so the socius, right? Society is not exchangist. The Socius is inscriptive, not exchanging, but marking bodies, which are part of the earth. We have seen that the regime of debt directly resulted from this savage inscription, for debt is the unit of alliance, and alliance is representation itself. It is alliance that codes the flows of desire, and that, by means of debt, creates for man a memory of words. It is alliance that represses the great, intense, mute affiliative memory, the germinal influx as the representative of the non-coded flows of desire capable of submerging everything. It is debt that articulates the alliances with affiliations that have become extended in order to form and to forge a system and extension representation based on the repression of nocturnal intensities. The alliance debt answers to what Nietzsche described as humanity's prehistoric labor, the use of the cruelest mnemotechnics in naked flesh to impose a memory of words founded on the ancient biocosmic memory. That is why it is so important to see debt as a direct consequence of the primitive inscription process instead of making it, and the inscriptions themselves, into an indirect means of universal exchange. Affiliation is the family I was born with, alliance is the, the extended groupings of that. Um, it, they, they went through a lot more in depth of that, but it's uh, where I came from uh, almost genetically, uh, my creation, my existence, whereas Alliance is the, the rest that surrounds me. Maybe mm -hmm. an awkward way to phrase it. But. Yeah, Alliance is more spatial, more <clears throat> vertically uh, arranged, I would say, and, and affiliances 
You mean um, you mean horizontally? Temporal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, and that's interesting because uh, when we talk about these alliances, it's like you subscribe to a form of preset order that is not yet changing or not uh, doesn't pay attention to how it, it was generated, so to speak. Uh, and uh, maybe to get more concrete here, <clears throat> it reminds me uh, when they say the socius uh, is inscriptive, um, marking bodies. It's like um, this um, constant revolutions in in controlling and um, yeah, how do how do you say it? Uh, and, and enforce new ways of uh, restriction on. Uh, people in the state, for example, in, in England, when they um, introduced uh, the postal system and every person uh, before that never had uh, something like <clears throat> a, a number for their house or uh, there were no uh, direct street names, but they created in England uh, in that time a, a very um, complex system uh, like today's maps of, of streets uh, with Every street has its uh, significant, um, its singular name. It, uh, every house has its specific number, so you can uh, not only point to a person by their name, but uh, to their number in a specific system. So they get uh, um, just represented in this system uh, um, without even paying attention to every other aspect of their life, how uh, much they they are paid and all this other stuff that is uh, not inherent to this system. They, they form... Yeah, there's still a loyalty because you have to subscribe to it to be part of the system because everyone is doing it or uh, there is some sort of um, catch to it that you uh, then would be left out of some sort of social um, productive machine like this postal system that uh, uh, created a more efficient way to deliver your... your um, your mails uh, in that time that uh, you don't have uh, just the postman who tried to search for your house uh, by by asking other people or because he, he knew you already because you were writing <clears throat> or receiving so many letters and packages uh, but he could just uh, look for your address uh, something that was not existent before that i mean certainly like from the point of view of like uh like consciousness that does feel like this is preformed right because by the time it hits us actually by the time we have a thought in us right we're kind of stuck in affiliation alliance here but this is um as i see it, affiliation alliance are sort of the grid um an x-axis and a y-axis that are part of the distribution so when the body well i guess the socius when the socius is distributing newman and the connections are being fallen back upon when, uh, when the surplus value of code is going to be produced for later consumption and those subjectivities um, or the effects produced thereby. This is all going to be mediated through this, um, basically through a grid of affiliation alliance, right? Where on the one hand, or on your rise access, that's axes, you've got administration and hierarchy. So it's very important because it's not just hierarchy, right? It's also like, you know, the administrative side. So the way I always talk about, like the way you find yourself in work, right? Where you've got a boss and they've got bosses. And there's this whole lateral side where 
you know, everybody fits in on the tree and their work is designated as such. So you've got that, and then on the on your run axis, you've got alliance, right? So the political and the economical. And that's important because um, at one level, even though there's a coding going on in terms of the hierarchy and the administration, there's still the side of uh, what people are doing and, you know, the political and economic engagements that are uh, putting them together into whether they're going to come together or kind of go against each other, right, in terms of groupings and that. And so when you're dealing with that kind of distribution through affiliation alliance, for our purposes right here, this is affecting the memory that the socius is going to produce, but also affecting how that memory is going to work with affiliation and, and um, alliance in creating that memory and how it's going to work back on it. Because as we go here, we're seeing that that distribution um, will not only affect production, but we're going to be working with, since we talked about repression, um, right, we don't, because we're dealing with the decoded, we're not really talking, when we talk about the germinal influx being borne upon by repression, that's not actually the decoded flows, right? That's sort of the displacement in the fourth paralogism happening. And part of the way that that's happening, what makes the germinal influx be possible for the selection is going to be the relate uh, going to be this grid work of affiliation and alliance through associates. And just to mention, the uh, germinal influx specifically is uh, if we think about the layers of things things pass through. Germinal influx is the sort of uh, place where individuated bodies are born, whether they be social or you know personal, whatever it may be. It's, it's the germinal influx is that essence it's where the bodies full bodies are born from does this um correspond to the um genetic um you know the static genesis uh here we read in um, logic of sense i, I mean, guess yes. might be the first stage of that uh that process or yes no it... you're like uh, thank you jk because my brain was i'm trying my best not to bring up logic of sense but uh in logic of sense as jk just mentioned we're doing a reading right now on uh, <laughs> the static ontological genesis, which is uh, Deleuze's uh, understanding of how sense and nonsense produce individuated bodies uh, and concepts. That is literally this. It's it's it's, it's an identical thing and uh, operates very much the same way. Um, ask me that again in a week as we kind of go through this, but 100%. There there that's where this comes from. This is a Deleuzean concept from that. Right. Just in different language and terminology. Yes. A little bit more refined, I think, here, because uh, as you'll see, the, the, the genesis of what creates them uh, isn't, you know, purely through language and those essences. He's got a, like a materialist uh, conception of how that transcendental field yeah. may operate, which is a little different than um, the, the way he was going through it before. But yeah, it's, it's just more refined. Um, otherwise, quite a deal. Yeah. But the dynamic genesis will be, uh, you know, a next stage higher than this one. I mean, we'll might, have to see. Might, yeah. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about next week the logical, ontological uh, genesis of um, the logical gen genesis. Which I think is the genesis is, of representation. Yeah, uh -huh, um, okay. Which I think is, is more on the social side. It's, 
these things are, these books are, are colliding for us in a very happy way, I guess would be how I'd put it. So yes, everyone should join our Logic of Sense reading for sure. <laughs> um, uh, the other half of this, yeah. though, I want to make sure we get to is, uh, and they're going to be discussing it in a second and getting deep, so I'm not going to like super go deep into it, but it's the discussion about debt here, that um, society is not exchangist, which this took me the first time through a lot to get through. So if anyone's having trouble with it, please don't feel ashamed. I did. I still kind of do a little bit. Um, but it's a, the way to be thinking about this is that debt is the base. It's not the free association of people or that it's exchanges and people work together in order to, oh, I need food. Well, here's food. Oh, good. Well, I have this and we exchange. Uh, instead, as they say here very cleanly, the, the, the actual scarification into flesh, which I'll be getting into, the cruelest mnemotechnics in naked flesh impose the memory of words, the debt that is created on this and the debt that is recorded in this primitive inscription process make it the indirect means of universal exchange we're going to be getting into that in the next paragraph but it's probably super important to make that transition as they're talking through this that it's not just that we're made we're a society and we exchange it's that there's a lot more happening here a lot debt being the primary so it's not like an <clears throat> levi strauss that uh, there is this free exchange, but more of the debt uh, to the social order that enables this forms of um, alliance that you constantly have to pay um, debt to uh, by uh, doing something for it, maybe even without wanting to do it, but, or it um, um, pushes you to something that you don't really want to do, or you, you feel like you... you did your part of the deal, so to speak, but you constantly have to do other things for this whole structure that is now uh, a regime for its own that is trying to to uh, integrate you and your desires into its specific notions. I, yeah, this is characteristic of uh, the capitalist axiomatic, right? Yes, and I, and I, I will answer triad very simply by saying I'm going to read the next paragraph because the second sentence starts with the line, <laughs> but Levi Strauss. So I, just, like, I'm, I don't want to answer by repeating the next paragraph too early. So I'm just going to dive in. Uh, there is a question that Marcel Mauss at least left open. Is debt primary in relation to exchange? Or is it merely a mode of exchange, a means in the service of exchange? But Levi Strauss seems to have closed the question again with the categorical reply. Debt is no more than a superstructure conscious form whereby the unconscious social reality of exchange is converted into cash. What is involved is not a theoretical discussion of the first principles of anthropology. The whole notion of social practice and the postulates conveyed by this practice are at issue here, and the whole problem of the unconscious. For if exchange underlies everything, why is it that what takes place looks like anything but an exchange? Why must it be a gift or a counter-gift and not an exchange? Why is it necessary that the giver also be in the position of someone who has been robbed, so as to demonstrate clearly that he does not expect an exchange, not even a deferred exchange? It is theft that prevents the gift and the counter-gift from entering into the exchange's relation. Desire knows nothing of exchange. It knows only theft and gift. 
at times the one within the other under the effect of a primary homosexuality. Thus, the anti-exchangist amorous machine encountered by Joyce in Exiles by Klosowski and Robert. In Gurma ideology, it is as though a wife could only be given the litiuteli or carried away, kidnapped, hence in a certain sense stolen, the litvotali. Every union that could too manifestly appear to be the result of a direct exchange between two lineages or lineage segments is, in the society if not prohibited, at least widely disapproved of. As Stride was saying, it's, it, Levi Strauss was very clear, it's, no, it's exchanges, there's a superstructure of debt. Uh, when, you, when exchanges happen, debt almost gets produced and starts circulating this economy, and it must be answered. Uh, he's discussing, uh, as we've discussed, potlatch, where the idea, you know, even in American Midwest or in a lot of places, hey, the new neighbor's coming over, let's invite them over for dinner. Oh, the family invited us for dinner, I have to bring a bottle of wine. All right, well, I'm going to bring a really nice bottle, and I show it off, and they go, fuck, now I have to, when I have to go back to Jim's house, I have to buy him a nicer bottle of wine. This back and forth, this debt that is produced in this exchange is just exchange, and debt is a secondary effect. And their answer is pretty simple. Um, desire knows only theft and gifts. Uh, I'll tell you, as someone as a three-year-old, it's fucking true. Uh, sharing or trading is not a thing. It is a gift or theft every time uh, anything happens uh, around him. I think most of us understand that even about ourselves. We can be much more mature about it if we want, but desire is where they're at. Um, and desire is what they care about. And it's really what we're talking about mapping out. Uh, at the underlying thing, when a wife is given, as they say here, and they use in Gorma ideology, the wife can only be given or carried away. Uh, they fake it and they play with it to make it so it's more socially acceptable than, you know, what seems like outright uh, rape. <laughs> um, or, you know, maybe giving the woman a choice, because who wants to allow that? Uh, instead, mm -hmm. they, they make play like it's an exchange. And they have to, because yeah. it's the, the way the function. It's, so the question, is it that exchangeism creates debt or that debt forces us to think through exchangeism as representation. Also, and maybe this is going too far, um, it reminds me of a critique of this uh, naive capitalistic notion of <clears throat> uh, this free exchange where everything just flows freely. Uh, but if you look at it in a not very deep way, <laughs> even I would say, uh, there's a lot of, uh, as they uh, described here, theft, gifts uh, people uh, taking advantage of others uh, not paying their taxes or um, um, raising uh, atrocious taxes on uh, some other people and, and it's this constant power game on how to um, get more influence instead of just this free exchange so everyone is is part of the uh, the the pie no it is not <laughs> this simple um, that the the tenderness is really me is is hitting me really hard with the with the desire knows nothing of exchange it only knows theft and gift it's uh, it's really hitting me hard. I love it. Yeah, it's it's phenomenally. Sometimes they have just those moments of perfect clarity that are just wonderful, and it's such a good line because again we're 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 trying to get at the base. What how does it all work? What produces it? 
And if desire only knows, it has the thing, like gift or theft. I just dig the shit out of that. I, I love it. And, and so you're going to love it a lot more. Uh, Please. He's saying that this is a natural characteristic of, uh, of all, all, you know, um, even primitive, you know, uh, societies. And it's not uh, unique, uh, you know, uh, in a, uh, in a capitalist system. Could you repeat that? Yeah, I mean, is he saying that this is like a, a, a primordial, uh, you know, notion of uh, that uh, in any kind of uh, society, you know, uh, outside the capitalist axiomatic, that is a, that there is this kind of, um, you know, um, debt, you know, um, in those kind of um, societies, you know, where desire is, let's throw out let's throw out throw out societies and let's not let like let's set a set set societies aside the question is um in like almost in a vacuum does desire understand exchange because again their entire conception at a basic level is that desire machines this base sort of transcendental layer of which makes up everything a very tiny bits of partial machines connecting and disconnecting kind of that produce the world that we know. Desire is the, the thing that pushes through that, the flows that make it. Does desire understand exchange? And they're going to be getting deeply into the answer that they say, which is no. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have exchangeism in capital or that they didn't have exchange happening as a thing. Exchange happens. And exchange happened in primitive times, happens now, happens all over the place. But the question is, is that the base reason that a thing happens or is it a thing that we manufacture on top of desire in order to make it palatable or to place it within social constructs? That's the bigger question. And that's the thing they're about to be getting deeply into because uh, I don't want to try to give too much of a preview, but whatever society we happen to be in, if at the base level desire is okay with exchangeism and totally grasps it, then there are knock-on effects in terms of what is produced, how it's produced, and how things function. If it's debt actually underneath everything that desire works as, that things are theft or gifts, um, that has significant knock-on effects. And I'm, I want to read the next paragraph because it's also a more of an answer to that, um, uh, JK. So I'm going to dive into that. Okay. Um, will it be said that if desire knows nothing of exchange, it is because exchange is desire's unconscious. Will this be explained by the exigencies of generalized exchange? But what entitles one to declare that shares of debt are secondary compared with a totality that is more real? Yet exchange is known, well known in the primitive socius, but as that which must be exorcised, encasted, severely restricted, so that no corresponding value can develop as an exchange value that would introduce the nightmare of a commodity economy. The primitive market operates through bargaining rather than by fixing an equivalent that would lead to a decoding of flows and a collapse of the mode of inscription on the socius. We are brought back to our point of departure. The fact that exchange is inhibited and exorcised by no means attests to its primary reality, but demonstrates, on the contrary, that the essential process is not exchanging, but inscribing or marking. And when exchange is made into an unconscious reality, 
structural rights are invoked in vain, along with the necessary inadequation of attitudes and ideologies in relation to the structure, for one does nothing more than hypostatize the principles of an exchange's psychology to account for institutions that, on the other hand, are recognized to be non-exchangist. Above all, what is made of the unconscious itself, if not its explicit reduction to an empty form, from which desire itself is absent and expelled? Such a form can serve to define a pre-conscious, but certainly not the unconscious. For if it is true that the unconscious has no material or content, this is assuredly not because it is an empty form, but rather because it is always and already a functioning machine, a desiring machine, and not an anorexic structure. As the desiring machines uh, form and create subjectivity uh, of any sort, whatever socius, the underlying question ultimately is, if it's exchangist, uh, then, uh, <clears throat> then the underlying sort of unconscious of how these things operate means that the unconscious is aware of equality of things and what a thing is worth and is able to gauge that and value that. If instead it's debt, it means it's about marking. It's a, I gave a thing away, that's a strike. I got a thing, that's another strike. It's a marking on me as a memory of these things that happen. It's debt recorded over time. This, this change is something that we can actually see as we look through, especially in the primitive, and they discussed through this, the way that the primitive societies basically did everything they could in order to ensure that debt doesn't get carried on, that the nature of exchangeism is something that is deeply regulated, granted by social machines and not through an explicit code of laws, but we have an explicit code of laws today. So you could say that, like you're fairly clear that exchangeism is something we have to very, very deeply contain. Debt, not so much. So it's an interesting, again, uh, switch on the whole thing. This is my grasp, Jack, Ken, try it if anyone wants to jump in. I suppose the simple way to say it is, um... So there's no exchangeism because there's nothing there's no universal equivalent, right? So this is straight out of Das Kapital Volume One and Value Form D. Here we have maybe a sense of bargaining, yeah, but since there's no no universal equivalent, uh, you know, if you want to work in the value forms, value form D is not possible here. Uh, and this is why it's also a little weird because it's not necessarily so that there's a fixed thing um, like in value form D where it happens to uh, capital or rather money. Um, so here instead we're dealing with what what's later going to make that possible, right? What's going to make something like value form D possible for all you good Marxians out there, um, which is going to be debt and credit relations, which they're pulling down. There might be some Artaud in here. I've, I've definitely read some Artaud into it when they get into the theater of cruelty. But the system of cruelty being like uh, this is straight out of Nietzsche's second essay in the genealogy of morals. This um, this being like the primary economy that's going to, for Nietzsche, make things like uh, not only virtue but other things like uh, utilitarian utilitarianism and calculation possible. So it's going to be the system of debt and credit. 
but in a uh, uh, in a primitive bartering uh, societies um, where they don't have a monetary system yet, then there's there's still there it, it's an exchange uh, relationship then, right, between um, people who are in that uh, system. <clears throat> but you're saying that uh, the the debt the idea of debt comes in when there's a when there is a uh, a a, a, a a uh, monetary system set up with codes and so forth that uh, that this idea of debt comes into being, right? It's sort of like uh, the difference between codification and decodification, the latter of which we don't really have in the primitive because that's exactly what Thesocius um, is preventing through, rep uh, through representation. It's preventing decoding. So where they write, yet exchange is known, well known in the primitive socius, but as that which must be exercised in casted, severely restricted, so that no corresponding value can develop as an exchange value that in would introduce the nightmare of a commodity economy. So this is what Brooks means, basically what's being repressed here. At some level, um, perhaps not the only thing being repressed, but some level what's being repressed is um, exchangeism. They go yeah. on to write, the primitive market operates through bargaining rather than by fixing an equivalent that would lead to a decoding of flows and a collapse of the mode of inscription on the socius. So that to me is where your primary difference is, is that in capitalism you're going to have the, uh, the socius capable of decoding, whereas in the primitive we're, we're pretty much talking about coding and non-coded flows, not decoded, but non-coded. Um, and I'll leave it to, I know you had something, and Ken, you were trying to say something, too. I yielded the chair. <laughs> um, well, I just, it seems, you know, maybe I've got it wrong. It seems like there's still debt in the primitive. Uh, and so far as, I mean, is the potlatch considered? Part of the primitive there's still debt like, like that's that's still a thing in the primitive i don't think jack was saying there's no debt it's debt not debt as we may know it in a representational sense but there is still recording done on the socius that determines who needs to do what when but it's a debt system and not an exchangeist system that does this at a base level yeah, it's all it's all that right because that's Nietzsche's thing is, you know, you don't even have um, what makes calculation possible in the first place is going to be the system of debt and credit, right? So before you even get to value form D where you have exchange, uh, you have exchanges and right, you're going to have prior to that and what will make that possible will be your debt and credit now. So obviously Nietzsche and Deleuze and Blattery are good financial officers, right? CFOs of their companies. And I think uh, the as we get through this, because I think once we start getting back to the Nietzsche stuff and getting more through the Levi Strauss, the, the line will be a little bit more clear. So I'm going to push forward to the next paragraph um, because I think that'll be a good call. Was there anything else on this before I move on? The difference between machine and structure appears in the postulates that implicitly animate the structural and exchangist conception of the socius. 
with the correctives that must be introduced into this conception so that the structure is able to function. First of all, when considering kinship structures, it is difficult not to proceed as though the alliances derive from the lines of filiation and their relationships, although the lateral alliances and the blocks of debt condition the extended filiations in the system in extension and not the opposite. Secondly, there is a tendency to make the system in extension into a logical combinative arrangement instead of taking it for what it is, a physical system where intensities are distributed, where some cancel out and block a current, where others cause the current to circulate, etc. The objection according to which the qualities developed in the system are not only physical object, but also honors, responsibilities, privileges, seem to indicate a misunderstanding of the role of the incommensurable elements and the inequalities in the conditions of the system. More precisely, in third place, the structural exchanges conception tends to postulate a kind of primary equilibrium of prices, a primary equivalence or equality in the underlying principles, which allows it to explain that the inequalities are necessarily introduced in the consequences. For some reason, I numbered this when we last read it. Well, it's because there's three points. The first is the nature of us looking at kinship structures, making the assumption that we do them based on uh, uh, I mean, it's just it's easy. In kinship structures, it is difficult not to perceive as though the alliances derive from the lines of affiliation and their relationships, although the lateral alliances, blocks of it, are not the opposite. Um, the idea that um, the kinship structures themselves are essentially uh, are they choices that we've made, or is it a series of debt uh, that allows us or forces us to sort of have um, those extended bits of filiation? Yeah, it should, as I understand it, they should work together because the big thing, I think, is that it's not necessarily that one is derived from the other, but that they work together in the same way that the BWO would put the paranoiac and the schizophrenic um, in, in service of uh, creating that surplus value code, right? So the, the alliance and the, uh, the affiliative uh, function in a similar capacity. Yep. Um, the second, there's a tendency to make the system an extension into a logical combinative arrangement instead of taking it for what it is. A physical system where intensities are distributed and some cancel out and block a current, blah, blah, blah. The idea of, um, with, with an exchanges system, you tend to think of uh, the structure of it rather than its, its sort of hypermachinic electrical properties. Uh, I give a thing, someone gives a thing to me. Um, we've got this larger logical arrangement that the whole thing is set up as, but maybe no. Let's step back and think through how debt stops this, encourages that, and is actually more of a circuitry that passes through the entire thing, the mechanical uh, that they're talking about here, the machine. Um, of the whole thing. Um, it's a great way of phrasing it. The objection according to which the qualities developed in the system are not only physical objects, but also honors, responsibilities, and privileges seems to indicate a misunderstanding of the role of the incommensurable elements and the inequalities in the conditions of the system. The, it's not just the thing we're exchanging. It's not just the uh, stuff we're giving, that there is a larger network of choices and things that are happening that all of these things 
uh, work on and imply on and force on or block or push. Uh, an easy example would be uh, if anyone here has ever worked in a corporation uh, and it's the boss's birthday. Uh, is there a such thing as just giving your boss a present? That's not how that fucking works. Mm -hmm. And we all know it. Like there's more than just that. It's not just exchangist or just simple or that it's, there's a lot of things that happen and it's not just this very logical, competitive arrangement. I heard you jump in trad. Did you have some? Oh no, you, you just forgot my, my, um, oh. big corporate, uh, PTSD, uh, after I had a practicum and, uh, a big corporate here in, in Germany for some months. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. Um, and then that Was last Deutsche Bank. No, it was Deutsche Bahn. Um, then there's the third element, uh, which is the structural exchanges conception tends to postulate a kind of primary equilibrium of prices, a primary equivalent or equality in the underlying principles. Um, I hope I don't have to tell anyone here that the idea that the invisible hand of the market is, is bullshit is bullshit. I, I'm just like, I hope I don't have to go into that here, this idea that Oh no, things are yes. Oh, this things are worth what they're worth to different people, and it's all the same. There's a there's a ledger kept by God. He puts it in his closet, and he writes, "Yes, corn is worth these many tomatoes." Like, when I please say I don't have to go through that. Um, it's a that that invisible hand theory is this final line, which I love. Uh, the invisible allows it to explain that the inequalities are necessarily introduced in the consequences. Um, things are always, at large, it's equal and it started equal. I mean, we have to have inequalities a little. <laughs> yeah. Um, please say I don't have to explain that to fucking anybody here. Uh, any questions on this paragraph? Nothing is more significant in this regard than the controversy between Levi Strauss and Leach concerning the Kachin marriage system. Invoking a conflict between the egalitarian conditions of generalized exchange and its aristocratic consequences, Levi Strauss acts as though he thought the system were in a state of equilibrium. However, the problem is altogether different. It is a question of knowing if the disequilibrium is pathological and a manifestation of consequences, as Levi Strauss maintains, or functional and fundamental, as Leach argues? Is the instability derived in relation to an ideal of exchange, or is it already given in the preconditions, included in the heterogeneity of the terms that compose the prestations and counterprestations? The more one directs one's attention to the economic and political compromises conveyed by alliances, to the nature of the counterprestations that come to compensate the disequilibrium of the prestations of wives, and generally, the original manner in which the aggregate of prestations is evaluated in a particular society, the more clearly the necessarily open nature of the system in extension appears, as in the case of the primitive mechanism of surplus value as a surplus value of code. But, and this is the fourth point, Jack for your numbers, the exchangist conception finds it necessary to postulate a closed system, statistically closed, and to shore up the structure with a psychological conviction, confidence that the cycle will reclose. Thus, 
Not only the essential opening of the blocks of debt according to the lateral alliances in the successive generations, but above all, the relationship of the statistical formations to their molecular elements find themselves brought back to the simple empirical reality, insofar as it is not adequate to the structural model. These systems of exchange or societies are open. They're, they're not a closed system. They're, they're hardly closed systems. We know this. This is not... No one here is shocked by this. I hope no one's shocked by this. Um, some of these things are very, very, like, in the time we've been able to get to kind of a push through this, thank God, um, with an understanding of these things. Probably Ten years ago, I would have not under been able to have this discussion. But, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, we don't have to talk about having a closed system. It's an open system. Uh, it is necessarily one. As you start talking about the way people in economic and political compromises happen, the prestations and counterprestations that compensate this disequilibrium um, within everything. They're talking here about the Kachin marriage system and wives, but it's just in general. We're not talking about an exchange system which necessitates a closed system, but it's there's a little bit more uh, happening here. And that's the final paragraph, which I think is the fifth one. I think we're about to come to, Jack. Uh, all this depends... Finally, on a postulate that burdens ethnology to the same extent that it has determined bourgeois political economy, the reduction of social reproduction to the sphere of circulation. One retains the apparent objective movement as it is described on the socius, without taking into account the real instance that transcribes it and the forces, economic and political, with which it is inscribed. One fails to see that alliance is the form in which the socius appropriates the connections of labor in the disjunctive order of its inscriptions. From the viewpoint of the relations of production, in fact, the circulation of women appears as a distribution of labor capacity, but in the ideological representation that the society gives itself of its economic base, this aspect fades before the relations of exchange, which are, however, merely the form this distribution takes within the sphere of circulation. By isolating the moment of circulation in the reproduction process, ethnology ratifies this representation, end quote, and grants bourgeois economy its whole colonial extension. In this sense, the essential thing seemed to us to be not exchange and circulation, which closely depend on the requirements of inscription, but inscription itself, with its imprint of fire, its alphabet inscribed in bodies, and its blocks of debts. Soft structure would never function, would never cause a circulation, without the hard machinic elements that preside over inscription. We will be getting to what inscriptions mean here, but that is the fifth and final of the postulates. Um, that, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> again, um, these things are far more complicated uh, and elements within a massive social scope than just being the commodity or the thing. Um, you might say, uh, Zizek here might say, it's, it's all, it's ideology. Definitely visits on it. Any comments, questions, thoughts on this paragraph before we move on to savage formations? Savage formations are oral, are vocal, but not because they lack a graphic system. A dance on the earth, a drawing on a wall, a mark on the body are a graphic system, a geographism, a geography. 
These formations are oral precisely because they possess a graphic system that is independent of the voice, a system that is not aligned on the voice and not subordinate to it, but connected to it, coordinated in an organization that is radiating, as it were, and multidimensional. And it must be said that this graphic system is linear writing's contrary. Civilizations cease being oral only through losing the independence and the particular dimensions of the graphic system. By aligning itself on the voice, graphism supplants the voice and induces a fictitious voice. Andre, Andre Leroy Gurhan has admirably described these two heterogeneous poles of the savage inscription process, or territorial representation, the couple voice audition and hand graphics. How does such a machine work? Or it does work. The voice is like a voice of alliance, to which, on the side of the extended filiation, a graphics is coordinated that bears no resemblance. The calabash of the extension is placed on the body of the young woman, furnished by the husband's lineage. The calabash serves as a conductor for the voice of the alliance. But the graphism must be traced by a member of the young woman's clan. The articulation of the two elements takes place on the body itself and constitutes the sign, which is not a resemblance or imitation, nor an effect of a signifier, but rather a position and a production of desire. Quote, In order for the young woman's transformation to be fully effective, a direct contact must take place between her stomach on the one hand and the calabash and the signs inscribed on her on the other hand. The young woman must become physically saturated with the signs of procreation, and she must incorporate them. The young women are never taught the meaning of the ideograms during their initiation. The sign acts through its inscription on the body. The inscription of a mark on the body does not merely possess a message value here, but is an instrument of an action that acts on the body itself. The signs command the things they signify, and far from being a mere imitator, the artisan of the signs accomplishes a work that calls to mind the divine creation. Does this mean modern tribal tattoos aren't cringe? Nope. 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 Does not mean that. Um, uh, because we, we live in a place of, of words and graphism. So it's uh, it's, it's too late. It's almost uh, like uh, you can't be partially in language and uh, you can't be partially in a place where tribal tattoos are cringe. Okay, this is going to become a very, very important element as we move forward. Because as we're talking about the etching on the body, very, very specifically, we're talking about tattoos. We're going to be talking about scarification. Uh, which is not uncommon in, uh, in Aboriginal societies. A lot of different ways that these things get recorded, inscribed on the body. In the mark on the body itself, though we have to think through here, it's very specific. This is not aligned on a voice. We think of, because we live in a place of language, we see symbols and we think words, and we attach them to words. Uh, we give them larger meaning that we actually apply to directly. That, that element is a challenge for us, a significant one, because it means when we look back at cave drawings all the way down to the etches on the body, we wanna know what they mean. 
they mean what they are is actually, I think, how they would answer this here. The line here uh, that is said by Andre uh, Leroy Gorhan, God, I hope I'm pronouncing it even remotely right. Um, the young women are never taught the meaning of the ideograms during their initiation. The sign acts through its inscription in the body. The inscription of a mark on the body does not merely possess a message value here, but is an instrument of action that acts on the bodies itself. That is how goddamn close they are to being able to touch desire itself and to record directly. This is why they are focusing hard on this. This is why they use a lot of the, the language that they use throughout this entire book is they are talking about directly recording on someone's body debt. Should be able to piece together where else maybe they've sort of referred to things that are similar to this and we'll be having this conversation. But the, the signs that command the things they signify and far from being a mere imitator, the artisan of the signs accomplishes a work and calls into mind the divine creation. The, the whole thing here is about the recording of debts on the body, directly on them. So, body without organs recording things on it for memory, blah, blah, blah. Like this is, we're seeing a lot of that come, come back around. I uh, hope I'm not nuts for saying that or people are not understanding, but that's, we're coming right back around to this. But how do these things get recorded and how does it work over time? Yeah. Uh, comments, questions, Jack, Ken, anyone, jump in. So I, uh, well, it sounds like we got a young thing coming up. I tagged uh, Webcam Parrot here because uh, this is something he's um, always interested in, um, or at least when I've engaged with him, something he's interested in. But, you know, right, it's uh, to get away from phonocentricism. And I think you have that here in this section because it looks like what they're getting at is the relationship between not necessarily speaking and writing, but voice and graph. Right, or, or vocalization and the graphing, or I guess I should say the phoneme and the graphing more so, right? The, uh, the unit of speech versus the unit of here being marking. It's not even writing in the way we're used to it. Yeah, it's uh, if we want to go into the Yelmslevy side of things, which I think isn't far from this, we're talking about uh, pure, almost pure expression, uh, maybe even pure purport. Um, just the, the element of the thing that is so ingrained and recorded directly, the women going through it maybe don't even need to be told what it means because the experience of having something carved or tattooed into you in this time is such a deeply symbolic gesture in and of itself that the experience of doing it, the way it's recorded and all of that is, uh, is something that keeps within you. You don't you don't lose that. As someone who has a ton of tattoos, um, and we'll be getting more, uh, there is a unique feeling. It's a, it's an addictive feeling of getting one. I don't have any tribal tattoos now, um, but it's a, it's really interesting stuff. Well, and here it's not even it's not really this, um, and I only make this point because of like Lacan, right? But it's not even necessarily the symbolic here, right? It's it's actual distribution. So the socius, because what they're making primary here is inscription, as opposed to circulation, right? 
because they want to what made what made circulation happen is going to be in scripting right and what makes the scripting possible is uh, that relations in that yeah because we're talking about associates and so what they're getting at here too to your point is that with these tattoos um and it's not just tattoos right i mean there's also like we're talking about cruelty you know there's uh, scarring and that happened as well but with these markings of bodies and whatever capacity they take place um we're talking about how going back to the way flows are circulating a lot um, we're talking about how affiliation lines work not only to distribute um newman in that right not only to distribute intensities but uh in in the way that it falls back on these connections um for social machines here yes when uh, scarification is a good example and i think the change over time um, a really easy example, a buddy of mine who does MMA, he's got a few scarification, uh, they're wild, and it's like one of the grossest things I've seen someone go through, one of them got infected. But I'll tell you, every time someone sees one, first thing they ask is, what does it mean? And he can answer. They mean things, as symbols he's got. I, I think here they would almost say, if you were to find a woman of, this, of these tribes uh, that they had done, had this done to them, you asked, oh, what does that mean? They would be confused by the question. Um, because it, it sort of, it speaks for itself. Um, it's a really interesting way. Now, but I do want to get into sight uh, here. Because um, it's uh, the other half of this, because we're talking about um, now the etch in the body uh, and the, the element of it happening to the person, to the to the woman or whatever, but it's not done in a vacuum. Uh, these these are ceremonial. This watching and seeing and having these moments agreed upon. Let's talk through the next paragraph, which gets into this, and this gets into Clastris, which is great. Uh, but how does one explain the role played by sight, indicated by Leroy Gruhan? in the contemplation of the face that is speaking, as well as in the reading of the manual graphism. Or, more precisely, what enables the eye to grasp a terrible equivalence between the voice of alliance that inflicts and constrains and the body afflicted by the sign that has a hand, that a hand is carving in it? Isn't it necessary to add a third element of the sign, eye pain, in addition to voice audition and hand graphics? In the rituals of affliction, the patient does not speak, but receives the spoken word. He does not act, but is passive under the graphic action. He receives the stamp of the sign. And what is his pain if not a pleasure for the eye that regards it, the collective or divine eye that is not motivated by any idea of revenge, but is alone capable of grasping the subtle relationship between the sign engraved in the body and the voice issuing from a face, between the mark and the mask. Between these two elements of the code, pain is like the surplus value that the eye extracts, taking hold of the effect of active speech on the body, but also of the reaction of the body in so far as it is acted upon. This is indeed what must be called a debt system, or territorial representation, a voice that speaks or intones, a sign marked in bare flesh an eye that extracts enjoyment from the pain, 
These are the three sides of a savage triangle, forming a territory of resonance and retention, a theater of cruelty that implies the triple independence of the articulated voice, graphic hand, and the appreciative eye. Such is the manner in which territorial representation organizes itself at the surface, still quite close to a desiring machine of eye-hand voice, a magic triangle. Everything in this system is active, acted upon, or reacted to. The action of the voice of alliance, the passion of the body of filiation, the reaction of the eye evaluating the declension of the two, to choose the stone that will make a man of the young Goyaki, with enough pain and suffering, by cleaving the length of his back. It must have a good cutting edge, says Clastris in an admirable text, but not like a sliver of bamboo which cuts too easily. Choosing the right stone, therefore, requires a practiced eye. The whole apparatus of this new ceremony is reduced to that, a rock, furrowed skin, sacarified earth, one and the same mark. So when we talk about a lot of these socius and how they produce and how they work and how they, they create, how signs work in them, how they circulate signs, how they circulate debts, how they, they play with all of these things, the machines underneath them, the, the ways that just as uh, different types of production are created, you know, with capital or socialism or anything, and we start thinking through how desire is produced and then how people are produced and then how representation is produced and how these things are modified. Uh, it is really important to remember that this is the type of thing they're talking about. They, the elements of the sign uh, here in the primitive socius, the three parts to it, uh, the carving of the actual element itself, the hand graphics, the voice audition that is spoken as it happens, and then the eye pain. Uh, and each of these is its own machine that is creating within this social machine. Uh, earlier you asked, someone asked, uh, what is social machine in this context? This is the social machine. This is what these things are. I'm going to read, uh, Jack posted a great quote. I'm just going to read. Asked of Guattari, uh, what do you mean by desire? For Guild Deleuze and me, desire is everything that exists before the opposition between subject and object, before representation and production. It's everything whereby the world and effects constitute us outside of ourselves, in spite of ourselves. It's everything that overflows from us. That's why we define it as flow. Within this context, we were led to forge a new notion in order to specify in what way this kind of desire is not some sort of undifferentiated magma, and thereby dangerous, suspicious, or incestuous. So we speak of machines, of desiring machines, in order to indicate that there is as yet no question here of structure, that is, of any subjective position, objective redundancy, or coordinates of reference. Machines arrange and connect flows. They do not recognize distinctions, between persons, organs, material flows, and semiotic flows. Uh, that's from, I'm 99% sure that's from Chaosophy. Um, and it's the afterword of, uh, God damn it, I've got it right here. One second. 99% sure. Oh crap. Yeah, here it is. Balance sheet, the balance sheet on Desiring Machines, I want to say is the title of it. Balance sheet for Desiring Machines. Right font, 
Und Page Styles und so irgendwas like this. Yeah, this is a it's a series of interviews in Chaosophy. It may be from one of the other pieces too, uh, specifically. It's beautiful. Um, and so as we're talking about desire being formed and desire becoming things and representation being created and machines that make all of this, be thinking through that. We aren't talking about the structures. We're also not talking about no structure. Like it's, there's this, it's this weird, wonderful little middle ground that uh, I've, I adore, which is the things are machines and things produce. It's not that there isn't no structure because it's not just this mass, undifferentiated mess. But it's that things produce and things create and here's how they produce and machines produce other machines and here's how they interact and here's how they play and it's it's all of these sort of uh, generative elements uh, consistently happening beautiful um any questions on this or theater of cruelty before we get into mouse and nietzsche i think ken had a Jungian analysis ken is cooking and said he can't talk right now and you're just giving him shit. I would never. And Ken has been posting a bunch of Jung, which ties in very nicely here. Uh, uh, I'm going to go back to the piece he posted from Jung, Volume 5. Uh, a symbol is an indefinite expression with many meanings, pointing to something not easily defined and therefore not fully known. But a sign always has a fixed meaning, because it is a conventional abbreviation for, or a commonly accepted indication of, something known. The symbol, therefore, has a large number of analogous variants, and the more of these variants it has at its disposal, the more complete and clear-cut will be the image it projects of its object. I know Ken, Ken's a huge Jordan Peterson fan, so at some point we'll have him read uh, Jordan Peterson's new book. And uh, I'm not going to edit that out from this recording, because this is what he gets for uh, cooking and not talking while we're doing this. I heard he stood in line for 24 hours to commemorate all 24 rules. Just oh, to get that book. He got yeah, Jordan I, I, Peterson I, to draw I them on his back. bet he's also cleaning back. up his room. He got Jordan Peterson to draw them on his back, and he got them tattooed. So, I'm just saying. It's a whole thing. The great book of modern ethnology is not so much Mouse's The Gift as Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morals. At least, it should be. For The Genealogy, the second essay, is an attempt and a success without equal at interpreting primitive economy in terms of debt in the debtor-creditor relationship by eliminating every consideration of exchange or interest l'anglaise. And if they are eliminated from psychology, it is not in order to place them in structure. Nietzsche has only a meager set of tools at his disposal, some ancient Germanic law, a little Hindu law, but he does not hesitate, as does Mauss, between exchange and debt. George Bataille, motivated by a Nietzschean inspiration, will not hesitate either. The fundamental problem of the primitive socius, which is the problem of inscription, of coding, of marking, has never been raised in such an incisive fashion. Man must constitute himself through the repression of the intense germinal influx, the great biocosmic memory that threatens to deluge every attempt at collectivity. But at the same time, how is a new memory to be created for man? A collective memory of the spoken word and of alliances that declines the alliances with the extended affiliations. It endows him with faculties of resonance and retention, of selection and detachment, 
and that affects in this way the coding of flows of desire as a condition of the socius? The answer is simple. It is debt. Open, mobile, and finite blocks of debt. This extraordinary composite of the speaking voice, the marked body, and the enjoying eye. All the stupidity and the arbitrariness of the laws, all the pain of the imitations, the whole perverse apparatus of repression and education. The hot irons and the atrocious procedures have only this meaning, to breed man, to mark him in flesh, to render him capable of alliance, to form him within the debtor-creditor relation, which on both sides turns out to be a matter of memory, a memory straining towards the future. Would anyone like to do that? Uh, because we're going to be closing out here pretty quickly because as we move into the next section uh this you know, we're gonna we're gonna try to finish three we're gonna try to finish this i think we can finish this today um short version here we'll give it a try um george bataille's worth reading by the way a cursed share 100 percent uh we've done a few readings uh we're going to continue to do bataille on occasion uh, nietzsche we did genealogy of morals last week the understanding of things at a base level is that man is, from, from genealogy of morals, man is basically created, uh, we can say mostly free, but is placed into a system of credit debt at the base level. Um, mobile, finite blocks of debt are the things that uh, allow a person to be placed into this world. And it's being done, and I'm just gonna say it clearly at the end here, because it's uh, from will to power. Uh, it's to breed man, to mark him in his flesh, to render him capable of alliance and form him within the debtor-creditor relation. It's all a matter of memory. It's a really phenomenal way to end the paragraph and explains it, I think, pretty nicely. Yeah, it does. At least a bit, I would say. I'll take a bit. Um, far. Well, uh, I have sort of... Um, Please. Um, um, God, I cannot speak today. Um, I have uh, something here that summarizes, I guess, this this aspect of guild or debt in, in the second treatise in, in Nietzsche's uh, genealogy. In this, Nietzsche examines the origin of the idea that humans can take responsibility for something and the human memory in general, which is exceptional in the animal kingdom. <clears throat> he sees the moral concept of guild as rooted in the material concept of debt against the creditor. He hints at the manifold, ostensible and real purposes that punishment has played in the history of diverse cultures. Like all facts, <clears throat> it has always been subject to new interpretations under new constellations of power. According to Nietzsche, the bad conscious, uh, conscience has its origin in the civilization of man who, under the pressure of living in an organized society directs his aggressive drive inwards and against himself. Far from being an appearance assumed by exchange, debt is the immediate effect or the direct means of the territorial and corporal inscription process. Debt is the direct result of inscription. Once again, no revenge, no resentment will be invoked here. That is not the ground they grow on any more than does Oedipus. The fact that innocent men suffer all the marks on their bodies derives from the respective autonomy of the voice in the graphic action and also 
from the autonomous eye that extracts pleasure from the event. It is not because everyone is suspected in advance of being a future bad debtor. The contrary would be closer to the truth. It is the bad debtor who must be understood as if the marks had not sufficiently taken on him, as if he were, or had been, unmarked. He is merely widened beyond the limits allowed, the gap that separated the voice of alliance and the body of filiation, to such a degree that it is necessary to re-establish the equilibrium through an increase in pain. Nietzsche doesn't say this, but what does it matter? For it is indeed here that he encounters the terrible equation of debt. Injury done equals pain to be suffered. How does one explain, he asks, that the criminal's pain can serve as an equivalent of the harm he has done? How can one pay back with suffering? An eye must be invoked that extracts pleasure from the event. This has nothing to do with vengeance. Something that Nietzsche himself calls the evaluating eye, or the eye of the gods who enjoy cruel spectacles. And in punishment, there is so much that is festive. So much is pain, part of an active life and an obliging gaze. The equation injury equals pain has nothing exchanges about it. And it shows in this extreme case that the debt itself had nothing to do with exchange. Simply stated, the eye extracts from the pain it is contemplating a surplus value of code that compensates the broken relationship between the voice of alliance that the criminal has wronged, and the mark that had not sufficiently penetrated his body. The crime, a rupture of the phonographic connection re-established by the spectacle of the punishment. As primitive justice, territorial representation has foreseen everything. First time through, I had trouble understanding this paragraph. Uh, I still, I, I don't have as much trouble anymore uh, because I've now read this, I've read this a handful of times now with some people far smarter than me. But this was a tough one because we're now talking about the way that, say, the criminal justice system is organized. And we think through our version of it. Uh, and it's a very fair point Nietzsche brings up. Uh, at what, in what way can we pay for something with suffering? Uh, someone creates a Ponzi scheme, steals millions of dollars. How many years in prison is that worth? How, how can that work? Can it go the other way? Can I spend three years in prison and you give me $5 million? Um, the answer is sort of, actually, which is hilarious. But it's not really how it, it operates. It's a debt position instead. It's, it's, we start from that place. The eye has to be invoked with it. Someone watching, someone seeing, someone taking part. It's not a vengeance play, ultimately, as much as we may uh, ascribe to that. Um, the, the pain is part of an active life and an obliging gaze. Just love that line. You need the people to see it. Everyone has to see it. Everyone has to know this is what happens when you do that. This is why you don't do this thing. Uh, and this is why everyone makes the agreement early on and primitive by everyone being marked. Other societies, it changes, as we'll talk about soon. But the idea of debt, this primitive justice, this territorial representation, foresaw all of this. The more I read the, <clears throat> the, the first sentence of this paragraph for for um, when they say debt is immediate effect or the direct means of the territorial and corporal inscription process, debt is the direct result of inscription, it sounds more and more perverse to me. Like there is this debt you, you incorporate after you are 
signed or marked by this um, uh, social machine, so to speak, you, you uh, become repressed in this sense, but still the debt is invoked in you that you have to constantly then pay back for this because you were inscribed with this signifying notion of a law or of a, a social structure that you own now something, even though you didn't ask for it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's completely it. Um, and it does have a distinctly perverse angle to the whole thing. Ken posting Adam and Eve is, uh, yeah, it's a, the original Smen. I like that. <laughs> original Smen. That's, that's, that's going in the fucking all time grades. Ken. Um, I will continue to the next paragraph. We're almost, we're, we're almost done. This is it. We're about to talk about what it, it is foreseen everything. Coding pain and death, it has foreseen everything, except for the way its own death would come to it from without. Quote, they come like fate, without reason, consideration, or pretext. They appear as lightning appears, too terrible, too convincing, too sudden, too different even to be hated. Their work is an instinctive creation and an imposition of forms. They are the most involuntary, unconscious artists there are. Wherever they appear, something new arises, a ruling structure that lives, in which parts and functions are delimited and coordinated, in which nothing whatever finds a place that has not first been assigned a meaning in relation to the whole. They do not know what guilt, responsibility, or consideration are, these born organizers, they exemplify that terrible artist's egoism that has the look of bronze and knows itself justified to all eternity in its work, like a mother in her child. It is not in them that the bad conscious developed, that goes without saying, but it would not have developed if not a tremendous quantity of freedom had not been expelled from the world, or at least from the visible world, and made as it were latent under their hammer blows and artists of violence, end quote. It is here that Nietzsche speaks of a break, a rupture, a leap. Who are these beings, they who come like fate? Or some pack of blonde beasts of prey, a conqueror and master race, which, organized for war and with the ability to organize, unhesitatingly lays its terrible claws upon a populace, perhaps tremendously superior numbers, but still formless, end quote. Even the most ancient African myths speak to us of these blonde men. They are the founders of the state. Nietzsche will come to establish the existence of other breaks, those of the Greek city-state, Christianity, democratic and bourgeois humanism, industrial society, capitalism, and socialism. But it could be that all these, in various ways, presuppose this first great hiatus, although they all claim to repel and to fill it. It could be that spiritual or temporal, tyrannical or democratic, capitalist or socialist, there has never been but a single state. The state as dog that speaks with flaming roars. And Nietzsche suggests how this new socius proceeds, a terror without precedent in comparison with which the ancient system of cruelty, the forms of primitive regimentation and punishment are nothing a concerted destruction of 
all the primitive coatings, or worse yet, their derisory preservation, their reduction to the condition of secondary parts of this new machine and the new apparatus of repression, all that constituted the essential element of the primitive inscription machine. The blocks of mobile, open, finite debts, the parcels of destiny, finds itself taken into an immense machinery that renders the debt infinite and no longer forms anything but one and the same crushing fate. The aim now is to preclude pessimistically, once and for all, the prospect of a final discharge. The aim now is to make the glance recoil disconsolately from an iron impossibility. The earth becomes a madhouse. We'll be answering questions you might have on this final paragraph, which I no doubt have a few, um, in the next two uh, soci completely. Uh, we're moving through the despotic and then the orstot uh, comes shortly thereafter. Uh, any questions or comments on this section that we finished? I can't believe we did it in a single reading. Uh, open, nail me. Any questions you got? Let's do it. Maybe to, to have an overview on this, it almost sounds like that <clears throat> Nietzsche here is saying by, and, and also Deleuze and Gautoy then, that these codings of pain and death always come from the outside or from without. So these are never evolutionary contingent, uh, contingent operations, so to speak, or evolutions in this sense. But these are, um, as further down on the page is uh, written, these are breaks, um, like the Greek city-state, Christianity, democratic and bourgeois humanism, industrial society, capitalism, and so socialism. These are all breaks, some sort of revolutions, but not revolutions from out, uh, from inside, but from outside. They are violent. They are not um, continuous and, and harmonious, but they come from the outside with violence and, and overthrow and persisting order. But yet still they have the same structure to them that they impose an absolute order to everything else and um, decode these old flows by it and reintegrate them in their narrative, in their mythos, so to speak. And, and make the debt infinite, as we'll talk about the despotic machine does in next week. Um, the, the nature of how debt plays within this is in the primitive, we're talking about specific, finite, open. I mean, well, speaking of that, uh, this is exactly what the Romans did with everything, right? Um, even even the so nowadays um, most people conflate the Mithraic cult with um, with Roman heritage, and they think that uh, Mithra was like a like an autochthonic Roman thing, but it wasn't. Uh, Mithraides um, the the Mithraic cult were these like pirates who would kick the Romans' ass and. Then after a while, the Romans, I guess, just respected them and then started worshiping the Mithric cult. Now everyone, whenever they see, not, I mean, this has been my experience, when they see Mithraism, they think Romans. And then the same thing sort of happened in the Bible, in my opinion, with, with the book Romans. And that's where you get all this nonsense on uh, about uh, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and, and that um, 
and that God divinely ordains all um, all governments and, and all like authority figures. That's all from Romans. Whereas before in like Corinthians, you get uh, you get that thing that Zizek likes to talk about where it's like, if you don't hate your mother or your father, you are not my follower. And so you get this more revolutionary picture. So yeah, and then this is the, like, uh, when Nietzsche is talking about the new idol and thus spoke Zarathustra about how it, like, consumes everything and then repaints it all under one, one apparatus, the state, right? And to try to summarize uh, overall, uh, Rimka, for example, because um, it is it's worth rereading, and don't hesitate to repost in the, the chat uh, the, for the reading group. Hey, what in the fuck? Because we'll figure it out. Um, the way that primitive societies operate, they, when a child's born, they don't like have debts or do things like this. Is not you know our our culture is similar. This is not abnormal for Aboriginal cultures either. It's uh, kids do whatever the fuck they're going to do. At some point, they reach the age of adulthood. And very often, and uh, there's a lot of books on this. Uh, there's a lot of great movies on this and documentaries, too. There's some horrific things. Uh, I say horrific, like it's really tough to watch. Um, of what it takes to become a man or a woman in a lot of cultures. of Scarification, tattooing, uh, worse. Um those things are done as a mark that let you know where you stand and what you owe, that you now are part of the society. Uh, very often until adolescence, kids really aren't. They're more of a drain, if anything. They're not like a, a they go out and produce or they go out and create. How, how do you get someone then who's turning 8, 10, 12 years old to know what they need to be doing and why? Well, a really good way is to literally carve it into their fucking skin. Um, and that is the idea that a, someone who's entering these economies isn't doing it out of, oh, excellent. Now I'm old enough. I'm going to give you five apples. It's the opposite. It's okay. Now you're joining us. Cool. Here is uh, what you now owe everyone. And you aren't going to fuck around because... Here is your alliance, here's your affiliation, this is how you're set up, and here's how you're working. And I'm going to fucking make sure you remember it. It's not how they talk about it, but it's totally what it is. It's totally what it is. Totally what it is. Um, and it's a thing that still happens to this day in, in cultures, uh, even modern ones. Uh, we have, um, Americans have their own version of this as well. Um, how do you make people debted? It's not like capitalism, because there is no... Uh, the, the thing to forget is what we understand is capitalism. We're going to be getting into capital. This isn't capitalism. We're not talking about systems of exchange or anything like that. What matters is how repression is created and how desire and social machines are manufactured. How production happens on a conscious and an organization level. In the same way that our body without organs organizes our desire, which is a productive process, how does the socius organize the production of the subjects or the social machines? Well, it starts with, the first thing it fucking starts with is you owe everything. You owe a bunch of shit and here's how. And it's carved in. That moment that that happens, 
The representation doesn't exist in the same way. This territorial representation is so direct on the skin, it carves in. You haven't gotten a fucking tattoo or you haven't gotten scarified. It's really, 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 really difficult to sort of describe, but it is a unique pain that is also kind of makes you feel alive. That's why people get addicted to tattoos. It's very strange. The If you watch a lot of uh, the documentaries on the older ceremonies, they did horrible shit and the endorphin rush 100% kicks in. Uh, it's it's wild to watch some of these people get delirious after having fire ants eat their hands for 20 minutes, like or bullet ants. Uh, there's a tribe that puts their hands in these fucking mitts uh, when they get old enough and they put, like it's wild, the stuff people do. But this marks that as this moment, and it is not a thing that means something, it's not a representation, it is, direct it is territorial representation it is here is the fucking symbol and you are marked now you are indebted to this process now here's how you belong and here's how you know what you owe that process requires not just the graphism the geographism which is the, the drawing not just the actual uh, words that are spoken during the ceremony which there usually is but it's also the eyes that see it people who take part and they take part in a perverse pleasure uh, not in a uh -huh, yes, fuck this person, I hate them, but in a, like, yes, uh, almost cult-like maybe mentality of, yes, oh, now they're becoming, yes, here we go, like, like getting into it. This organizes that subject's productivity entirely. This, this representation controls who you do stuff for and why. Who is your alliance? Who is your affiliation? You're marked. You are fucking set. That violence is set there. Your debts is what fucking starts this. Now, this is an important switch because an exchangeist economy has a completely different direction, as I said early on. Here we're talking about the debt, the carving, the setup. Now here's a question. How does debt change that? Because if exchangeism is the way, well, we've learned to do better exchange over time, and here's how that's set up. It's like, no, no, take a, take a break. Fuck exchangeism. If debt is really how things work, how did jet debt shift over time? And in the despotic machine, we're going to start talking about how debt becomes infinite. Because debt is not infinite in this territorial. It is uh, very explicitly, they say, uh, that it is um, uh, blocks of mobile, open, and finite debts. They're knowable. They're direct. They are directly connected to my desiring machines. They organize my desires. They place these things in the places they place them. But that goes away because there's a much larger machinery suddenly, and I'm disconnected from it. Um, the Postgres question, what changed, is literally the next three, the next three sections. Like, this is literally the question. Um, how did we get from this where we have no economy and no power systems, and I am having my desires organized directly by inscriptions on my body, my full body, all the way to this weird fucked up representation of Oedipus, which doesn't deal with my desires at all and instead traps them and fucks with them. That's a shift. Well, it's not something that happened accidentally. It's contingent, but it's also not something that's, you know, just, you know, evolved over time. It's pieces here, pieces there that drop and build and come back together. And so it's a, it's going to be a journey, but this is kind of that first step. I hope that was a decent explanation of this section. All right. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close out. Thank all of you for joining us on this. Next week, we'll be moving on to the barbarian despotic machine uh 
about two to three weeks from now, I will be doing my best to keep this up. I'm moving in three weeks. So as I get closer to that, I'll be letting you know if we'll maybe be taking a day off or if I'm going to be able to keep doing it um, or if someone else is going to leave, uh, which is not something I want at all. So with any luck, I'll be able to do it. But thank all of you for joining and uh, I look forward to it all.